Hello, and welcome to Movie of the Year, the only podcast on the internet that has the science and the screaming to determine what is the single greatest movie of any given year. We're about halfway through this season of 1985, and we thought that things were heating up, but tonight, they will heat up more. My name is Ryan, and I will be your host for this episode about the Russian war movie. War might be strong. War-ish. It's got a little bit of war in it, called Come and See. Our challenger, one of our challengers tonight. No, Greg won. La- no, Mike no, won. I lost. Okay, so our hold on, Greg. You Sorry. don't have to bring. You don't. You don't even have to bring it up, Brian. Our I thought you were going to say you don't even have to bring me out. <laughs> <laughs> our returning champion, because he watched the Breakfast Club harder than Greg, mm-hmm. is Mike. I ate breakfast seven times a day. I watched it. Uh, and that's what I think helped my preparation. So I came and saw as much as I could last week while preparing for this movie. Good. And Greg is here. Can you beat that intro? Uh, I'm so glad to hear about how much you came in the last week, Mike. Uh, I, too, was eating breakfast for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But ultimately, I just didn't have the award-winning content. So this time around, I focus on the awards, Ryan. And I, nothing else. Yeah, that's, that's all I brought to the table. I have to say right off the bat, this is a this movie I think really tests the format of our show. Yeah, uh, it's <laughs> it's like we like to be light and have like a, a like fun good time as friends together, and this is a tough movie to to do that with. I think that's a that's a challenge that we should acknowledge right at the beginning of the episode. Well, that's why I watched it the first time and took the normal notes and got really depressed. Uh, and then I watched it again to you watched MST, it twice MST 3K. I was like, nope, I'm coming with jokes, baby. <laughs> so everything on this. Everything you say is prefab MST 3K jokes for the show. And keep in mind that their jokes work because they're watching the movie while you are. So yeah, like uh, at minute twelve of the movie, you're gonna say something at minute twelve of the podcast that is not gonna make a lot of sense. No, but if it lines up, man, it's wizard. It's it's it's, it's Dark Side of Oz. Like, okay, if you put. It'll line up. You know what you can do that with, for real, with this movie? Uh, the album The Crane Wife by the Decemberists, um, which has a song called Come and See. It has a song called The Island. And then, of Holy course, crap. Cr- uh, The Crane that's like in this movie and just kind of follows them around for a while. And one of the songs on Crane Wife is about the siege of Leningrad, which is, is like, true? or Stalingrad, which is... Uh, like something that the director of this movie lived through and kind of based his experiences that it, or like based this movie off his experiences in. So it's weird. It's like you, it feels like this movie syncs up with that one particular December album. Did they make a light hipstery romp of an album based on this movie? They made I, that album actually like has like, there are several songs that are just allusions to different war crimes, <laughs> which you don't think listening to it because it's so folksy and everything. But uh, the Shankill butchers, that's like a, a group of like, anti-catholic northern islander or northern oh. yeah um, okay i, I find song. i find talk about the decemberists as torturous as watching come and see so let's actually get to the movie that we're here for <laughs> um there's a lot to discuss and dissect about this movie and we will be as respectful as possible and the whole time and we will try to make sure that whatever fun we have is sad as well but <laughs> let's just get to our initial overall thoughts guys um after finishing this two and a half hour 
um, movie that was like it was I. I texted you guys earlier this week that this is in the top ten of the hardest movies I've ever had to get through in my entire life. Yeah. Um, how did how do we feel about it though? As not just a a way to destroy yourself and your faith in humanity, but as a work of art in general. When I um, when I saw Brazil, I was like, whoa! You know, I, I had seen Brazil before, but we watched it for this season, and I was like, we've never seen a movie this good on the show. And then Ryan, you said the same thing, and I remember at the end of that episode being like man that feels like this season's over now brazil did it like it's better than anything we've ever seen before and this movie is like right away two episodes later maybe a a better movie than brazil i am blown away i'm absolutely stunned by how effective and powerful this movie is A, a huge difference is brazil is still a movie uh-huh. Like, like it still plays the normal movie hits. Like, you could eat popcorn and watch it, where this is the closest we've come to watching an art piece yeah. for the podcast. But it's so often uh, all you're doing is staring at a pot of plant for two hours, and somebody's like, desperation at the end of it. And you're like, why did I waste my time? But this mixed in just enough of what a movie does. It's salt bait, a bit of plot in it with the artistic stuff. And then, yeah, it, it is the best war movie made. Well, Mike, you and I have both watched and discussed on other podcasts um, this guy's granddaddy, like the the father, the main guy of Russian film, of modern Russian film, um, Tarkovsky. And I would say that as hard as this movie is to watch, it's not as like obtuse mm-hmm. or abstract as Tarkovsky. Like it's hard, but it's still it's still a movie ass movie. You know, like is that stalker. That stalker, yeah. Yeah, fuck stalker. I did not did not care for it. I mean, Tarkovsky definitely comes closer to what you're talking about. Not that close, but still closer of like thing that's projected on the wall of a museum. There was uh-huh. a lot of plants in Stalker, so maybe it was. <laughs> and I can we'll get to some Tarkovsky like uh, inspirations in this movie. I can see it, and I think that if you're a Russian filmmaker, you just gotta right like yeah, it's Tarkovsky. Um, but that the the forward momentum as it is of the narrative. Um, doesn't take away how hard it is to watch because instead of it being all over the place and like abstract, you're trying to figure out what it means. Instead, it's just like, I think that the audiences have seen real before and they have not, they have (laughs) not seen like this, you know, and it, but still a heightened level of artisticness at the same time. Yeah. It's a mix of like the, the surreal, the movie starts off very surreal. We've seen movies before and Brazil, like, I mean, because the movies both came out in 85 and because, they both seem to blend like surrealism and brutalism together or like, you know, brutality. Like um, that was the word that I kept coming back to with thinking about this movie. It's a brutal experience. It, mm. it beats you up. It's tough. It's hard. Uh, it's about the worst parts of humanity and it makes you really confront them uh, head on. But so it, 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 like Brazil, it has surreal moments, but those are so many of them are front loaded mm-hmm. and you're like, those moments are like kind of before the war comes uh, to again, quote the Decemberist. Like, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> God damn, Greg, we get uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you are like, it, you're, you're uncomfortable with how surreal it is. Cause it feels weird and you're not like, you can't settle into the narrative. But then once the war does hit in this movie, a lot of that is stripped away and you're left with just like terrible realism and you mm-hmm. want it back. Like you yeah. want back into the, the cipher like you want back the, into the, the nightmare matrix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah the nightmare because the surreal wasn't like a fun escape it was still nightmarish but yeah. at least it wasn't but i think this surreality the surrealness just changes 
it, it, it's not in what the camera's doing anymore. There's just weird things, but because of the horror they're living through, there's so many little moments that are surreal that they're happening at all. A clay Hitler built on top of a skeleton is surreal, but the characters are doing it, so it yeah. changes, yeah. you know? Yeah, I always like I'm always nervous about when we talk about certain movies where it scares people away when you're like, uh, you don't know what's real and what's not. Or um, there's like, they're not dreaming, but it's not real life. And you have mm-hmm. to figure that out. And that's, it, it's not, that's not this. I think that no. the director does a great job of like towing that line of like, it's all, it's all a nightmare. And the dream stuff is less scary than the real stuff. And it, it all blends together where that skeleton thing, Mike, that you're referencing, you know, uh, it may it may have happened, it may not, but it seems to just fit perfectly through organically throughout how this movie mm-hmm. goes. I think it's a it's a weird like sort of protest that they make. They don't know what else to do, and so yeah. they construct that that weird thing just like as an fu back to the you know, the Nazis. And it's also like, do you want to build a snowman? You yeah, know? like <laughs> they put the nose on and the it's adorable. The They're trying to get to- Flory to come out of his mud hole to come play with them. But right around that time is when the movie seems to depart from any sort of like surrealism and into just like a like this is happening. Mm-hmm. Like there is a circuit, a weird like circus like atmosphere to the, the to the violence, and there is maybe a hyper reality by the fact that like the Nazis seem to be existing in one reality and the villagers seem to be existing in another. But all that stuff seems very real. It seems mm-hmm. like as if a camera was turned on a, on a historical moment. Yeah, that that's... I, I think at that point, he's like, all right, I got you, you used to surrealness, what I'm doing, but this is... Look at these people. They all have accordions and fun instruments and are just drunkenly driving around while they are casually murdering people. But yeah, I did like... Basically, the Nazis, when we finally get to the Nazis, in it's sort of an episodic movie, but there's one one episode is long and important towards the end um, where the Nazis just completely destroy a village. Um, and it wasn't until after I watched the movie where I thought the Nazis were like kind of big and broad, you know, because it's basically like a bunch of evil drunk frat boys, like mm-hmm. cartoonish coming in and like, having like yucking it up while they you know try to commit genocide but in the flow of the movie it did not catch me off guard it just it felt like it was like yeah this is how come and see works baby well it, it's how it come and see but it's also it's so interesting how they use nazis because nazis are jaws like you do not see them so they're horrific that you just get like the plane or you hear them in the distance but and when you finally see them uh they're just some big dude named bruce it's i think they have to be that goofy because even though humans can do atrocities, they're like it's like false levity. Like we're gonna make this fun because otherwise I have to think about that I'm shoving all these people in a house to set it on fire. Yeah, Plus totally. The- I think that has a, a a lot to do with it. Like that's why I think it's like they're living in a different reality where yeah. they don't. If you look at them, they don't look at the the people they're doing this to. Because of course you wouldn't, you couldn't. Yeah. You know, they only look at each other. Um, they look past the people they're doing this to, and they like look for the approval of the people that they're with and doing it with. And that creates this like overlap of two different cor- like realities that are intersecting in like the brutal killing of of one of those groups of people. It's- but then at the end, I don't like I don't know if this is hedging his bets or what you would call this. But then at the end, he does say like he puts up the text on the screen, and it basically says like, uh, "No, motherfucker, that shit actually did happen." Like if you thought that yeah. I was like heightening reality to a point just to show yeah, how yeah. evil they were, no, I swear to God, they came in and did that to six hundred and twenty-eight different vill- villages. 
It was a quarter yeah. of the population. It felt similar to Spike Lee at the end of Black Klansman yes, showing Charlottesville uh, yeah. and him showing that. And not only that, but there's the Hitler montage. Yes. Like, just in case yeah. you thought this weird movie was just a fun film. Well, we're going to go deep on the end, right? Like, we're going to, because I, like, th- I would say the last, like, 15 minutes of the movie, I have a lot of questions about, like, what's going on and, and uh, theories about what it means, but ultimately questions about what the movie is saying, because that title card's not the last thing that we see yeah. in the movie. Unfortunately, because of Mike's, like, MST3K in the show, we have to talk about the end at the end. Otherwise, <laughs> My jokes Mike won't says, line up. Thank you. <laughs> and I, I want them to ever so much. Oh, they're fun. So, <laughs> so instead, let's take a break, and we'll get closer to talking about the beginning. Come and See is about the Nazi occupation of Belarus, which saw German troops destroy over 600 villages, often killing every resident before moving on to the next and repeating the horrors. In this way, it tells the very brutal and very particular story of the atrocities of one war. But through its depiction of the brutality of 1943, the extirpation of whole communities, the loss of childhood, the sexual violence, the manic thrill of the butchers, we know we see the unchanging face of all war. We watch as one boy, Flyra, Floria, Floria. I couldn't get a handle on what his name actually, like how we should say it. Floria. Loses loses everything he has, and we see this loss age him and break him. And all this without even mentioning the director Emil Kilmov's movie is rapturously shot, technically brilliant, bold, innovative, daring to the extreme, in a nearly unmatched viewing experience. Large groups of actors, none of them professionals along with machinery and the camera and crew itself, move like clockwork through shots that rival, for epicness and scope, any in the history of cinema. And juxtaposed against this, close-ups held for a discomforting amount of time as characters process insurmountable loss. Pop filter Hall of Fame Roger, Famer Roger Ebert starts his review of Come and See by writing, It's said that you can't make an effective anti-war movie because war by its nature is exciting, and the end of the film belongs to the survivors. No one would ever make the mistake of saying that about Alem Kilmov's Come and See. Taste Buds, do you agree that this is at least the most different, if not the greatest, war movie of all time? And, like, I want to really hit on war for this segment. You know, we'll, we'll talk about other stuff later. Yeah, I, I think one is 99% of war movies, even if they're anti-war, do they're still the glory of war. They're still fun. It's still like, look at this band of brothers going and fighting and isn't that inspiring this especially movie, the tv show band of brothers uh, band, yeah they were one of the worst uh, offenders <laughs> of that and like movies that try to make it boring like jarhead are just boring and so that doesn't work either so to balance it and say war is boring and disgusting and to make a cinematic masterpiece all at the same time is you know Mike. pretty pretty cool of him it, my question is like i i think it is um certainly the greatest, I mean, war movie that, that I've ever seen. I have heard it referred to many times as an anti-war movie. And I have an interest, like, I want to sort of zero in on that. Because that that designation, I'm not totally sure that, like, I don't think you can see the movie and come away and be like, war is a good thing. But I don't know what the answer is for this particular conflict. This, the, the Nazis were like a, a force coming through and 
absolutely ravaging the landscape. What's the anti-war like position that we can take on that? Um, th- there's a couple different times where guns in this movie are shown to be buried, uh, and when they're unearthed, people are are scared. But when they're buried, people are just absolutely penned up and and gunned down and 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 burnt. And I I don't like what how can we be how can we look at this conflict and say that like war is what's to be blamed here and not war is like the only thing that could be like what could these people do what could these villagers Mm -hmm. in belarus do other than like unearth their guns and like try to kill as many of these people as possible I think even when the guns are buried, they're at war. So it's still the war, but they're just like pretending they're not. They're trying to go along, even though their country is occupied and they're being murdered all the time. They're still thinking, ignoring the literal weapons of war that they think can ignore the actual war. And so even though I don't think he lionizes the militia, uh, because they do fucked up things as well and that they're not great, uh, cause, and they, it's almost a game when, when Floria first joins it, that, that camp is that they're all taking photos and having fun. So it's, it, yeah, it's, there's no easy answer. And he's not saying, Oh, bury the weapons because that's not great either. I, I think it's literally, there's nothing. So maybe it's not anti-war. Maybe it's anti-humanity. Like there's or, no good way to be a person in this world. Yeah. I get, I, I, I think I get what both of you are saying. And I, I think maybe if we can change the question, it's, um, is this the first movie that really actually doesn't like what Mike said in the beginning, um, glorify war in any way, you know, and make them seem like, I think that every single director that, you know, has ever lived really that we've ever heard of has a war movie under his or her belt. And no matter what, they have to find a little bit of time to show that these are actually heroes. And if you sign up, you can be heroes too. And so is this, Maybe it's not. Is this not the first anti-war movie? But is this the the movie that has been the most truthful about war in the history of film? I I think so. One thing that's very truthful about it is that like, if your homeland is invaded and you go join the military, probably what'll happen is you won't be in your village when the bad guys come. Mm-hmm. So much of this movie is just that the armed forces are not there to actually protect the people. They're just there to hit and to strike at each other, and because of that, the people just get completely abandoned like it so often the partisans are not they're not defending villages yeah they're hiding in the swamps they're hiding in the forest because you have to because to defend the villages you're just going to get chewed up with them but it's like the people just get totally abandoned and then basically rolled over by another armed force it feels like the point is that there is something in humanity because especially if you look at this part of the world in this time, it's just one group of people butchering another group. It's like a Cormac McCarthy novel or something. It's like before this happened in this same area in the 1940s, a bunch of, like all the Polish officers of the military and so much of the Polish intelligentsia were like killed by the Soviets. And there's so- a, yeah. And I mean, like there's this part of war where it's like, we got to win which means you have to lose. So that's why we have to kill you. But other, other than that, we're just both two 18-year-olds who just like happen to be born in the wrong year. That's a ton of war movies. Yeah. Um, and Or like we have to take out your you know, top officials so we can win. It's all just about advantage. But uh, this movie says something 
that I don't think a lot of even World War II movies say, and I think a lot of people in today's America think but don't say, which is like one Nazi who is finally captured by the Russian soldiers is just like not all races deserve to live. That yeah. that's like that's our motivation is just that we don't think that like why would you think that everyone gets to live? We don't think you should, and so we kill you. And that's just it's such a clean way of breaking down how mm-hmm. awful and evil the other side could be. And it's interesting because he's disgusted with his fellow Nazis at that point because they're all trying to be like, it's not our fault. We didn't like we're orders. And even the guy in charge is like, I'm a good guy. Nobody's going to hurt me. And that this younger Nazi's like, fuck all of you pussies. Some yeah. races don't get to live. There's a there's an older guy who's really pleading for his life. He's like, we all took this too far. Look, we've all made some <laughs> mistakes. Mistakes have been made. <laughs> Let's talk about the other side, though. Let's talk about the Belarusian soldiers. Uh, it's crazy that in 85, where Russia is always the bad guy in every movie, um, we have one where they're up against Nazis, and it's made by Russia, and... It took it took years for this guy to get this movie made because Russia was so worried that they would be put in a poor light. Yeah, are, are they? Are they? Do you do you fi- do you think this movie is truthful to the Russian soldiers as well? Yeah, when the the opening scene, not the opening scene, but when Floria first meets anybody in the militia because he grabbed that gun, it it felt like the tension of Inglorious Bastards when uh, the Nazi is in the house looking yeah. for Jews, like they aren't like, come join us, it'll be fun. There is a violence in them just being in the house and how they deal with the mom. And they do think it's glorious because they're like, we got to wait for the women to wake up because we need to parade out of this town because we're stealing this kid. And I mean, they're abandoning them. They yeah. want they want to be celebrated while they are stealing the only people that could possibly protect that town. They're taking them away, as you said, Mike, under like force. The other th- time I thought of Inglorious Bastards was when he's trying to hide out in that village. And the mm-hmm. Nazis come in, and he's in that big, the, that room with like everybody in that village, and yeah. they're trying to figure out if everyone like really is from that that right. village. So that had that same tension. Motherfuckers, uh, like they, him and his and Glacia, the girl that he meets uh, towards the beginning of the movie, they actually go back to uh, Fly's home village. Like they're yeah. in that house, and they're like, "Oh, okay, cool. Here's some soup. Let's eat." And the movie is all. This is like thirty minutes into the movie, and I'm already. Just watching them silently, like find soup. It's full of dread. Like I am, yeah. like clinching my That's chair, like a freaking horror out. Horror movie. That that well, whole part is where this movie is like more than at any other point an absolute horror mm-hmm. movie. Well, because it's so it's silent, and you are expecting things to jump out, and then there's flies buzzing in the corners of the house, like, and so all the whole time I'm like, he knows and is pretending that his family made it. Oh like, yeah, dude, he knows when when he suddenly gets up and runs out the door. He, like it's probably he has put it together and then mm-hmm. he from that point forward he's just having like the beginning of what will become the mental breakdown that takes place over the rest of the movie but that's like when it, he like runs out to that island like through the mud and everything yeah that's bog. just him trying to escape his realization you know he doesn't want to deal with the fact that like he can tell what happened and he thinks if he runs away that maybe yeah. he won't ever have to reckon with it there's like a, there's probably 15 or 20 questions you have to ask someone and they have to answer in the correct way before you can like recommend this movie to people. You know, I don't know who you guys talk to. Maybe you have like film buffs and if they haven't seen it, then they should watch it. But most of the time it's like your mom or your niece and you uh-huh. have to, you have to like clear them. Um, do you guys think that the act of watching this movie needs to be such that it is in order to get the point across? Is the brutality on us 
I mean, I, it feels weird to complain about, like, oh, this movie was hard for me, as opposed to what it was like for them. But is that all necessary? How important of that is part of the filmmaking process? I think it's important. I, I think it's important because he is trying to translate something that is impossible to translate to people. And because the nature of civilization is to remove us from things that are as upsetting as war. And because of that, we're able to really do some very awful things because most people are so removed from the consequences of what's really going on. And that's why it's come and see, right? Like he's going to take you to from the center to the margins and he's going to take you into the soldiers that are actually like creating the life that you get to have. Mm -hmm. And he wants you to see it as brutally and realistically as possible. Not every movie probably has to do this, but for his, for the way he wanted to do it, I think it has to be as upsetting as, as he makes it. Yeah, and I, it especially, I mean, I, like, the, it's, if you guys can remember back to the beginning of your life when we watched the first 10 minutes, do you remember his head, his smile, his, like, the brightness from his face? Yeah. I, I think that that's, in some part, like, the way that I look at it is kids watching war movies and then mm-hmm. playing war, which he sort of does in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Play, play more. goblin-voiced friend. With his, yeah, with, yeah, you know... <laughs> He hangs out with young Satan, and they fucking party and find guns, uh, and then watching that across the course of the movie, you know. Mike, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I it's, I think it does need to be brutal, especially, like, at this point, so many war movies had come out, and even if they're anti, they're rah-rah. So it is, like, you have to drain the energy out of them, and I, I need you, the viewer, to know, at no point will this be a good, fun time. Yeah. So it has to be brutal, so you can't trick yourself because there's so many movies, I think, that are anti-war that audience still trick themselves to be like, that seems fun, though. I mean, the movie that was probably on the list before this movie came out of the best movie of all time, best war movie. And this movie is not on the top of the list. I, I looked up, I just typed in greatest war movies, and it is hard to find. And some lists I found, uh, Hurt Locker, far, far above, Ugh. come and see. <laughs> Fucking Hurt um, Locker. But... That might be because the movie is literally hard to find. Like, it's hard to yeah. find a good copy of this movie. Don't come, can't see. Uh, but Patton, I think, was the biggest one. Mm-hmm. And Patton, as I guess real as it was for the time, is so fucking raw, raw, stars and stripes, here we oh, go, yeah. war is cool, you know? Well, that's I think people who are making a list of great war movies, even if they won't say it, they want that dash of jingoism. Like, they want that raw, raw. So if a movie doesn't have that, they're not going to be like, that's good. Like, well, people I mean, who love war movies might hate this movie. Think about, like, there's so many American-made movies that want the help of the U.S. military to like be on their bases or like use their rockets, shoot their rockets at each other or whatever, um, that they have to ask permission and then yeah. you have to do certain things in your movie. That's why it took Russia so long to okay this movie is it was like, you know, a decade of being like, you know what? Fine. Let's finally tell the truth. Yeah. You know? And also we will not help you out. We're not going to give you a fucking dime. You borderline trader. No, we're just <laughs> letting you make it. But yeah, because they don't come out as heroes. We talked about they sound threatening. An- another point of how Belarusian soldiers don't look good when he's finally in the camp, there's a cow that walks by and it's written on it is we'd rather eat you than let the enemy get you. So that's not like a winning glorious mentality. Oh that yeah. Is, we're, we're all dying together somehow guys. This is that like old school, like we'll burn our fields and mm-hmm. like have nothing ourselves just so that passing through our territory is painful to you. I mean, this is like, because at this point in, in, in the real world, this is like 1943 when this movie takes place. 
Germany had been in Belarus for like a couple of years at this point. So this is like not the, the vanguard of something. This is like a force that is always around, always fucking with everybody, um, doing this just to villages every once in a while, I guess, over the course of a few years. So they have a lot of time to, to develop this enmity for, for this force. It's almost like if like the mafia, like what we, what we think about the mafia of like, it'd be a real shame if something were to happen. Um, just took over the government and now we get to just do this whenever we want. All right, guys, good job on that. I think we, uh, we're starting to crack open, uh, come and see. We have no choice, but to talk about the hottest babes of 1985. Mount Rushmore. Gentlemen, last week we went over all of the hot, hot gentlemen of 1985. Yes. We're going to settle down a little bit. Settle, settle down. Okay, because we got pretty fucking dirty and sexual yeah. about those dudes. We got uh, riled. To tonight, we're just going to talk about um, four fine, fine as in fine. No, not that fine, Mike. Uh-oh. That's that's disrespectful. Not the Marky Mark one. <laughs> uh, f- uh, four women who we feel represent Ladies. the the fashion, the the looks, the the hot, the hot looks of '85, the vibes, '80 vibes. At this point, I just want to point out, Ryan, I knew your grandmother, and she was a wonderful lady, and she used to have a way of expressing her admiration for um, a young man that was so disarming, and it was just like, it was so cute. And I just want to say that with both boys and girls, that's, when we do the hot boys and hot girls, that, I'm like your grandma. It's just like, you know, I'm just like, that seems like an attractive person to me, but there's nothing behind it. Like that, I Wait, never- what it? What did she say? Was it when she said, let me see that honky dick? Yeah, she was like, oh, the hog on that one. She would say, I want to mother that guy. <laughs> so she would be like, we'd be like watching Bobby, Bobby, what's his name, Filet, Bobby Lay. And she'd be like, she'd be like, I like him. I, I want to mother him. <laughs> that's so much weirder. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm so much, that's that. arming, not disarming. Yeah, I left that part out and then I was like, I hope it doesn't come up. But it did. <laughs> and that's, everybody, that's Ryan's grandma. Y'all forgot Ryan's very good at follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just in general, guys, when we think about uh, mid-80s ladies, what are we thinking? Are we thinking, like, as far as hair goes, the bigger the better? Is that where we want to start? That does seem like, yeah, that, that's like part of, of the 80s aesthetic, right? Like even shorter hairstyles are feathered to the point where mm-hmm. it's like as big as the small hairstyle could possibly be. And do you guys know what that means? Because I always thought that, and this was true of the 80s too, you would put a literal feather in your hair. Yeah. P- people would just walk around with that shit. But, but it, then they it would just means... call it macaroni. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> I hated that part. You... You fucking traitor. That's so unpatriotic of you. <laughs> you fucking macaroni. Look at you. Uh, but no, it means like uh, it's like light, gentle, bouncy yeah. hair. Yeah. yeah, make make like bigger and like tease out. And and th- there's like the, the ludicrous 80s hair that's Luda. cartoonish. Like fly, everybody thinks flock of seagulls are, are as big as possible. But there's some that is it's much bigger than nowadays hair, but it's it's not a cartoon yet. The other day, I watched a movie for no. I just, I just never seen it before called Working Girl, and because you were doing was, a podcast about it. No, I was not, Greg. I would never legally. Would never you do have that. to. I think you watched a movie. This <laughs> was uh, 1989, so we're talking four years of hair development. You think we get out of this? And it's Melanie Griffith and Joan Cusack, and like they have to turn 
to the side to get through doors. <laughs> their hair is so big. <laughs> and their shoulder Fuck. pads, I have to imagine, also hinders them. Joan Cusick in that movie, guys, like, she had this one thing where uh, she would pack the eye makeup on, and but then cut it in half, so th- the right sides would be green, the other sides would be blue. Uh-huh. It was just, what a, what a time. All right, <laughs> let's see what you guys think. Greg, you got fucking pummeled last week. You, you went out of here limping, so you're going to go first. Who is your first respectable female of 1985? All right. When I think of the respectable females, this is worse somehow, guys. The 1980s, <laughs> I think of the non-objectionable young teenage sex romp, Weird Science, which came out, I think, in '85. And it did. It was one of two John Hughes, uh, Anthony Michael Hill joints. It no, starred Anthony Kelly, Michael Hall, Kelly LeBrock. Kelly is scientifically the most beautiful name. Uh, and Kelly LeBrock has like the 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 real '80s curly hair. She's brunette, which is again scientifically proven to be the most attractive type of woman. Uh, and is it a little problematic that she, that she's created by these two young boys? Maybe, but honestly, she's more of like a big sister to them. They program her so that she can never like steer them in the wrong direction, and so then she refuses to have any sort of sex with them. Does she take one shower with them? Yes, she does take a shower. Who with doesn't? Them. Are they both wearing their blue jeans in the shower? Yes, they are. <laughs> the two of them in the shower are way more naked than she is. <laughs> They're just sort of huddled together in a corner. Anyway, Kelly the Brock, for, for me, big impact on a young, growing Greg. Uh, well, plus, she has one of the sexiest catchphrases ever of a, what do you two maniacs want to get up to tonight? <laughs> 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 to these two scared little boys. They Which, use- coinc- coincidentally, was the other thing my grandma said. <laughs> <laughs> I have to do it, and here's why, Greg. This is why I love this one. Um, smoking hot, right? Uh, yes. her, her name translates from French to English uh, to Kelly the Brock, and I like that. <laughs> but this is what's so important to me. She cannot go on 84 or 86 or any other year. Yeah. She owned 85, and so she has to be on here. And that paid like the the sort of like movie not the movie poster image of her but like the most like probably popular still from the movie of her like standing in the doorway like leaning against it that's like such an iconic eighty five image that image is so many times bigger than the movie itself. oh yeah <laughs> do you know what's super important for all of these uh, women of whatever year we're doing is how many shots in the whatever movie they start in. Are they just walking through like a mall or something and guys just like turn their heads? They can't stop looking. They, they pull do the their Martin glasses McFly. down. Yeah. Like there's so many double takes with Kelly LeBrock. Deservedly so. Nice job, Greg. Also, I mound. just I want to point out just before we, we move on, since we're talking about weird science, there was a, a USA show, Weird Science. It had multiple seasons and I've seen many of the episodes. <laughs> Are you serious? Back to you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I was in love with the woman that played the robot lady or not the ro- the computer program whatever she is the lady they make the one in the usa show i was vanessa like, angel something like that i was so in love with her and that carried me through two different two different seasons of weird science she was the jerry ryan of her generation dude wh- we when are we gonna do like the 90 what would that be like 96 97 list okay mike you're up uh, I l- like that 85 is the only year this person could show up uh, because in my head she was in two movies and then went away forever, but she might be one of the most beautiful people who's ever existed. Uh, Mia Sarah was Sloan and Ferris Bueller 
and Prince Lillian Legend and two giant movies in for 85 in Mike's life, but also just never made another thing fucking ever again. Okay, I'm going to put that on the maybe pile. That's bullshit. Just for a couple of things. One, um, Ferris Bueller was not 85, and I'm now I'm going to try to come up with like a negative point button anytime either one of you knuckleheads bring up legend. I just I want <laughs> I want both of you to shut the fuck up about that stupid movie. I have to say, not to be downer guy, but anytime you think of and we've had this conversation before of an actress who like has two huge roles and then seems like she's about to pop off and then just suddenly disappears, it's so hard to now look back at that and not think that she was like the victim of something. Yes. You know? Yeah. You hate to be the downer. <laughs> <laughs> He's heating up! Um, <laughs> I will say, though, that Mia Sarah was... Uh, you can tell Mia Sarah was hot in Legend because of how horny Tim Curry was. All right, Greg, you are up. <laughs> okay, this I, I might lose points for the not just strictly uh, 85-edness of this because this next person has been beautiful, I guess, forever. <laughs> and it's still exceptionally beautiful, yeah. But it is Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, and what movie was she in in 85? She was in Lady Hawk, <laughs> the movie that like this podcast that made her sort of been about for whatever reason, but none of us have ever seen it. I watched the preview for it, and she is ethereal and transcendent in it. She has like a really short haircut, but it's feathered in the style of the 80s, and I assume the style of medieval when whenever Lady Hawk takes place. Um, Simultaneously. <laughs> and she's, she's also like, been in another big movie like a year before. This. Well, in the, the in this year, it's crazy. A movie called Into the Night came out, and uh, Jeff Goldblum played, uh, shit, what's his name? And Michelle Pfeiffer played Rosanna Arquette, and it's just about this guy spending one night on the town meeting this crazy girl and getting into a lot of adventures. Oh, really? Like, it's th- like before... Midnight? or Yeah, it's just after... There was two after hours that came out that year. One was Scorsese and one was John Landis. So we did the Scorsese one. But that was much like uh, executives trying to take over poor towns or you know parts of the city. That was another thing in the 80s. Just like a uh, girl gets you into a bunch of adventures over the course of one night. And Michelle Pfeiffer, that's the movie that made her a star. Everybody was like, no, fuck that. Like She's a star for the next decade at least. So I'm sorry, but I got to... I'm putting her on. It's okay, Ryan. You don't have to feel bad about that. I, I deeply apologize, Greg. Feel no, a little right. guilty. All right, Mike. Uh, this is another person who who spanned a long time, but I do think 85 was her goddamn year. Uh, not only is when everybody thinks of her style, they're thinking of her in 85 as her style. Uh, the Like a Virgin tour is what made her blow up worldwide. She was so popular, they thought she was the lead of Desperately Seeking Susan, even though she was not in 85. Uh, her nude showed up in Playboy in 85 and then sold for $100,000 after that. So she, I think, scientifically and disgustingly, but have to be one of the hottest people of 1985, is Madonna. Disgustingly? Well, because selling nudes is, is like, I don't think she's the one who sold them. Yeah, like oh, I see what you're saying. She, she sold her. them in the late 70s, and then somebody hung on to them and then sold Probably them. Probably for less than $100,000. For hundred grand in 85. Yeah, I mean, this is one who may have, like, multiple years, but um, I don't know. As far, like, she might have multiple years as far as, like, the Rushmore of pop culture in general. Yeah. But as far as, like, you know, the babe of babes, like, yeah, she's definitely in here. Mike. Yeah, I don't think we should hold it against her that she could have dominated... Rushmore for 
a 20, 30-year period. But dominated. And yeah, uh, I mean, the fact that she did have a hit movie in the year, in the year, definitely helps her out. Okay, so I've got three in. I've got one spot left. Holy cow. Let's get one more from each of you. Okay. If we're going 85 style, I got to say Phoebe Cates. Now, obviously, uh, Fast Times came out a few years before this, but Gremlins, was it Gremlins came out right before 85? Phoebe Cates, big star and alleged hot girl. <laughs> You've heard on the street? Well, we'll see. I mean, you ultimately, Ryan, I think you're the one who decides. That's true. That's true. I will I will let her know whether she is or not. Is she the hottest girl attached to the Gremlins franchise, do you think? Uh, no, no Greg. Watch Gremlins 2, the new batch. <laughs> <laughs> Greta Gremlin is right there. Oh, man, when she gets when Greta Gremlin gets out of the pool and pulls off her bikini, <laughs> kisses Judge Reinhold, I love it. All right, Mike, last one. What do you got? Uh, last one is, uh, do you know what what's one of society's top things for a hot girl is being a Bond girl? And I'm saying Grace Jones in 85 was May Day in A View to Kill. Not only that, she was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress. Same year she was on several songs, uh, promoted the Honda Scooter, which was a big deal in 85, and showed up with Damn, her boyfriend. bringing in the Honda Scooter, <laughs> Showed huh? up with her boyfriend, Dolph Lundgren, uh, in Playboy. I can't believe you just... You know all of that off the top of your yeah, head. Dude. I love Grace Jones, man. And I can't you think do. of she she's somebody who's only fucking eighty five. Like she, yeah, are, she you, what? are you like low key Playboy guy? <laughs> <laughs> but only like the classics, the eighties. Every group of friend needs one, right? It's everybody doesn't touch it except for one person who could say, like, oh, uh, her likes are this, her dislikes are this. I'm sorry, turn ons and turn offs. Um all right, so yeah. Way to go, Mike. That's 85 as shit. Your 1985 Mountain of Babes is Kelly LeBrock, Michelle Pfeiffer, Madonna, and Grace Jones. We're going to take a break from all of this and talk about war some more. Please, no. Well, that is very, very funny or very sad. And perhaps now you have something to think about or very problematic. And perhaps we have something to think about. But in any event, I'm sure you have some reaction to what you're listening to. So why not check us out on the social media? You can go to Instagram or Twitter and find us at Your Pop Filter. Email contacts at Your Pop Filter. Hey, everybody. Keep watching them movies. This film, Come and See. We're talking about Come and See still. This film was shot in chronological order, mostly with a steady cam, and uses a ton of POV-like shots, and even has characters looking at us throughout the movie. How does the camera work contribute to making this movie as effective as it is? What, the one thing I noticed about it is it's this mix of, like, I think the most obvious thing is these really tight close-up shots of people just, like, trying to fathom wh- all the terrible things that are happening or, like, slowly slipping into insanity. Maybe sometimes real insanity because they're so scared about the production of the movie itself. <laughs> Uh, but then that is mixed with that sort of like really close interpersonal stuff is mixed with these big sweeping, what must've been very technically tough shots where the camera sort of like moves through a huge Mm -hmm. crowd of people moving. And that was like the thing that just like, uh, that took my breath away several different times. That's like the most optimistic or like the coolest thing or the thing that's like feels good about this movie is Mm -hmm. those shots are so impressive. Can I say something real quick right there, Mike? And then I'll set you up for a point. Um, (laughs) One of the things that was hard not to think about is, there was a movie that came out last year or two yeah. years ago. Who the fuck knows? 
um, that I thought was mediocre at best, but people fucking flipped out about uh-huh. it called 1917. And yeah. if you if you were a big proponent, if you were a big like uh, supporter of 1917, you've clearly at least at the very least we know that the uh, the Academy is not in touch with Russian films of the 80s. Yeah. If you've seen Come and See, then 1917 is the biggest pile of bullshit garbage that you will <laughs> ever bear witness to in your life. It's like basically somebody watched, it's basically the guy watched Come and See and was like, the only thing I'm going to add to this is the camera's never going to cut. Or Yeah, like this is this is the part of the Universal Studios tram ride dedicated to Come and See. Yeah. That's what 1917 <laughs> yeah. is. All right, Mike, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say it really remind those big sweeping shots. Uh, not only is like the choreography and technicality impressive, but it, it really reminded me of like Altman, and because you could be now there's no plot. We're following this whole scene. At any point, you could look at a different character and follow them through their moment in there, uh, and how impressive that was. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know if I want to bring Saving Private Ryan into this, but with with definitely with 1917 and a lot of these movies, uh, it's so it's it. It's clearly choreographed, you know? It's like a dance yeah. number on Broadway. And this had to be, otherwise they couldn't have done it. And yet, you never stop feeling that that chaos in the pit of your stomach as yeah. well. He captured chaos of a war camp so well. And those shots felt like it was the kid watching it and taking in how crazy it would be. Like, the first time he goes to the Belarusian war camp, it's just madness everywhere. And everybody seems to know what they're doing, but the camera and the kid have no idea what's going on. And like the the shots of the Nazis coming out of like the morning mist, the way which that whole force of people rolls into the reality of the movie and then rolls out of it and is like the in the meantime is like so loud and terrible and awful. But like they come in and disappear into like nothingness, basically. And the feeling of that, like juxtaposed against the chaos of their being there is just so striking. I'm not sure if Tarkovsky would have let himself do something that's so clearly cinematic, you know? Yeah. And I think that Spielberg, let's say in the first 10 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, is sort of, which is great, but is sort of only capable of that shit. You know, this, this feels like the perfect blending of those two mentalities. Uh, I, want, I want art. I'm going fu- I'm, I'm to art the shit out of everyone. But also, like, I do want to make a watchable movie. Yeah, it does feel like he looked around. He was like, look at all these tools in this kitchen. Why don't people yeah. use more than the one thing and just starts blending them together? Mike. Yeah, That's like, cool. why does it have to be that you choose one tone between realism or, or surrealism? If both are ways at arriving at some aspect of the truth, I want to get there one way one time and get there another way another time. Let's really hone in on the... Not just the close-ups, which are frequent, but the literal looking at the camera, which is if you open up any filmmaking book, that's a no-no. You're supposed to, anytime like an extra looks directly into the camera, you're supposed to edit that out. Um, But he has multiple characters. It's not just our lead. Multiple characters look at us and do what? What are they, what are the characters doing and what is Klimov doing? It, it reminded me of a few years back, somebody went through and took pictures of soldiers like before they went like right out of basic training their first year in iraq and afterwards and it felt like that where like we would not have really noticed the wrinkles on this young kid's face and how his hair turned silver if that didn't happen like watching the ravage of war literally go in front of us throughout the film and at the same time them staring at us like it feels like it makes us complicit like motherfucker you're trying to watch this for a movie because you're entertained (laughs) you're doing this to us like we're just rubberneckers yeah and, I mean, it, it is hard not to feel Mike. complicit, uh, especially, like, when 
in America, like we have a history that is so much like this. I think that when we talk about World War II, we always feel either victorious or separate from it. But like our handling of indigenous peoples and like the way that they occupied this land before we came through it, especially, I mean, we're like a, we're lagging a week behind this, but the Supreme Court just handed down that decision about the Indian reservation in Oklahoma. But like, especially our treatment of like the Cherokee people and the trail of tears and everything like this we have done stuff like this. We, this is in the history of America as well. And so I think that as much as this is such the particular story of one set of atrocities, it's like it's it's a perfectly honed version of that story. And yet and because of that, it applies to all of these other atrocities all across time that are done and conducted in so much the same way, really. And like this is so baked into the history of Western civilizations, really. And I mean, what's crazy about that, too, is that the stuff that America did to Native Americans is long before when this movie took place. And Germany has already done like they've done the PR. Holy shit. We're so sorry tour about World War Two over and over and over again for like the last, you know, 60 years. Yeah. We still have yet to do that. We're still like, eh, we didn't do anything. We won. That's the difference is the Nazis lost. That's what made them have to think about it. Unfortunately, we did not lose. And so we pretend and whitewash what happened. Whitewash. Okay, now I get that term. (laughs) Another movie that I wanted to bring up was that I thought was in my top ten hardest to watch of all time um, until I watched this movie from a couple years ago called Son of Saul. And Son of Saul was sort of gimmicky in the fact that um, it was this guy going through, sort of like going through all of the aspects of World War II. Um, He had to... You know, he was captured by Nazis and then he had to like fight sort of with the Nazis against other Jewish people and just to survive. And the gimmick was that the camera didn't really leave his shoulder. And that was heroin. And it still is. It's not like come and see made turn that into like a musical comedy. But again, I'm seeing that like, oh, I just didn't see come and see. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I didn't see like how come and see just really is this milestone for war movies past 1985. My question, how about this, instead of me just going off, um, there's a lot of steady cam. There's a lot of, it feels like the camera is supposed to be there like in Son of Saul. Mm-hmm. You know, like like we're playing the video game of this awful, awful thing. Did that pull you in or did that take you out? I think that pulled me in because, because like getting swept up in the chaos and it still kind of guides you. But it's not like so often steady cams and then like I'd say more modern war movies like Transformers. uh they shake it so much to be like, see how crazy it is. <laughs> it's fucked up, dude. <laughs> to and, give it that documentary feel. And this just felt smooth, a smooth steady cam and natural that it, it was su- such a more subtle and deft hand at doing what all those hacks want to do. Also, I feel like this movie does go out of its way to right. present itself as a movie in part mm-hmm. because it's going out of its way to present the brutal reality of an experience. And he has said, the director has said himself that like he couldn't show the things he's really actually seen in his life because they were too much for even a movie that's this realistic. There was stuff that was too much for this movie. Humans are actually worse than what we saw in this movie. And so he can only, like, he tries so hard to walk us all the way there, but after a while he has to say to us, like, okay, I'm representing here, and you have to remember that you're not actually seeing it as bad as it is, even though this hurts so much for you. And that, like, so we have to remember we're still only getting... 75% of how terrible this is, yeah. or, you know, 50%, whatever it would be. 
shoving an entire village into a barn and lighting on fire uh, and laughing and shooting is not the worst. <laughs> There's more things. But yeah, I think that's so important because like realism, like hardcore realism means that like you are supposed to forget that you're watching a movie, which is sort of impossible to do, but at least like all of the all of the typical things that a movie will do and fake uh, aren't going to be here. We're not going to use those. And this middle ground that he does where you know, he does some crazy things that sort of ape realism, but then also never lets you forget. It's this way of, yeah, it's just, it's just a way of saying like, I want you to, I want you to see what war is like, but a movie can only do, do so much. It's like, he knows the limits of filmmaking mm-hmm. yeah. and that stretches the limits as far as he can. And well, I, I think there's like a part, like when he's in his village and they're like returned to the village and he's sitting in his house eating um, I think what finally makes him realize what's going on is that he can smell death. Mm-hmm. And so that's just one dimension in which like we don't experience that scene in the full three dimensions because we're not there because we can't smell the death like he can. And so we are like necessarily removed in many like sense capacities from the actual realities. And I think when it comes to like the horror and the atrocities, it's a combo of one, if you show it, people won't believe it. Like, the truth is worse than fiction type thing. Yeah. And if you show it, people won't. Like, this movie, like, Toes the Line is, is so brutal and hard to watch. But if you showed everything you wanted to show, people would just not watch it at that point. Like, they'd be like, no, I'm out. Like, I can't and it's already <laughs> it's already overwhelming to the point where it's hard to take in the enormity of the evil that you see because there's so much of it. So it's already, like there's so many bad things that happen that you already can't feel them. So there yeah. doesn't, you know, maybe we would become numb if there was even more. I mean, like this is, this is the poster child. Like this is now an all timer of one time movies, right? Like, yeah, there's, I will there's never movies. like I, I'm, I watched, I generally watch our movies twice before the show. Cause I want to like, you know, be familiar with them to be able to talk about them. I can't, I'll never watch this movie again. I'm so mm-hmm. glad that I saw it, but I will never watch it again. It's too much. I'm trying to get away from that just personally. Like I'm trying to, I don't know, sort of, all right, you, you, you've now like borne witness to all of the awful stuff. Can we not be surprised by that and then go through it again? It's hard. Like I, it's, it, it's going to be a long time before I ever watch this movie again, but it does demand it. Like there's so much shocking shit that like all of his craft, all of the other things he's putting in so much of the symbolism uh, is, is hard to like totally figure out because you're so grossed out and enraptured yeah. by the stuff in the foreground all right let's let's talk about something else <laughs> no we can't we, we're gonna keep talking about this movie um it's hard to find like uh, fun facts and shit about this movie guys so yeah I did the best with trivia. Bear with me, please. And remember, uh, even if you're annoyed by the job that I, me, and the board and the drop pad did, uh, just remember that like me and the drop pad are in charge of points. So, uh, <laughs> what was the director E. Klimov's plan to shield young Alexei Krav- Kravchenko from the horrors of filming the movie? Mike. Mike. Didn't he get him to like hypnotism meditation? Yes, he tried to hypnotize him and just have him walk around being hypnotized. So he wouldn't remember the horrors of the movie. It didn't take. And so the director was like, fuck it. So, yeah, you're just going to go through war. Yeah, my answer was going to be nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they shot at this kid. Like, they literally shot bullets at this kid. What does the director of this movie do when he's done using a ladder? Greg. Greg. Climb off? 
Climb, he climb up. He, he, he climb up the he ladder and put it away. <laughs> so now you guys know what we're dealing with here, right? Uh, number three. What is the name of the animal Major Stormbonfuhrer carries around as a pet? Greg. Greg. Is that a lemur? It is not a lemur. Mike, is it a fuck like a sugar baby? It's not a sugar baby. <laughs> well, unless that's a baby. Ni- that's, that's a nickname for this. Um, it is not a primate. It's a loris. A loris? I think it's a, a sugar baby. Uh, what part of the physical changes Alexi goes through is not makeup or special effects? Mike. Mike. His eyes? His eyes what? <laughs> he, he, he grew eyes? The, the, the wrinkly eyes? No, I think that was makeup. Greg. But inc- incredible makeup, Greg. His hair. What? Actually went white like that. Yes, okay. his hair turned white from the shooting of the movie. Greg. I think that's apocryphal, but I like it. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Uh, the literal translation for the Russian title is not come and see, but this three-word phrase that sort of means the same thing, but it's slightly more awkward. Greg. Greg. Come here, boo. <laughs> uh, That's wrong, but <laughs> I like it. Mike. Mike. You come see? <laughs> <laughs> All Mike. right. It's go and look. Uh, <laughs> Alexi, Alexi Kravenchko went to star in Bros, and it's three sequels. Name the sequels. Greg. Greg. Bros 2, Bros 3, and Bros 4. That is correct. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> the readers of the Soviet Screen Magazine chose Come and See as the best film of 1985 in that publication's annual survey. Is that just some bias shit or what? Greg. Mike. Greg. No, that's legit, dude. It's I'm legit, so, yeah. <laughs> honestly, there's a good chance this is the best movie by a lot that came out in 1985, so... Sometimes, yeah, the Russian movie's the best, and the Russian magazine has to pick it. Yeah. <laughs> we sorry. Uh, a remake of this movie, revolving around the Native Americans of the Great Plains, is called what? Mike. Mike. Last of the Mohicans? No. Greg. Greg. Go and look. No. It's Comanche. Oh. A remake of this movie, <sighs> this time about okay. a boy. You guys done? No, uh, no, no I don't think so, it. dude. I think, I think one by one they're going to have to be reacted to. <laughs> a, a remake of this movie, this time about a boy who is jealous of the amount of jizz his friends can make, is called what? Greg. Come, Mike. Greg. Come more me? <laughs> I like it. Mike. Mike. Come and V. It's come and V. Mike. A remake of this movie uh, about the scientist who perfected the spice cumin on the third try is called what? Mike. Mike. Cumin 3? No, incorrect. Greg. Greg. Dr. Cumin 3? <laughs> no, it's, it's Cumin C. A and B did not, did not work. Oh, okay. A remake of this movie where you tell the current speaker of their house to follow you is called what? Greg. Greg. Hello, C? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Mike? Come with me, Pelo C? <laughs> nope, it's Come Nancy. A remake a remake of this movie, Through the Eyes of the Smartest Primate, would be called what? Greg. Chimpanzee. Chimpanzee is correct. It's not that hard, guys. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> it is hard, Ryan, because the gravitas of the movie is interfering with our ability to think about these fripperies. <laughs> I, I, I love my fripperies. I'm sorry. 
A remake of this movie with the main character ejaculates the initials of the state whose capital is Rally would be called what? Mike. Mike. Come and see. Come and see is correct. Mike. And finally, you know a, remake, a remake of this movie, but instead it stars Jessica Day's best friend, would be called... Greg. Greg. Come CC. <laughs> come and CC. I'll give it to you. <laughs> That's trivia for Come and See. When we come back, we're going to uh, keep talking about that movie. Hey, guys, real quick before we get back to the rest of the show, I just wanted to tell you about YourPopFilter.com. Go to that website to get everything that is Pop Filter, all of our podcasts, all of our articles, all of our secrets. Everything is on yourpopfilter.com. While you're there, go to yourpopfilter.com slash Amazon. And if you make that your new Amazon bookmark, then you can help Amazon less and us more. And isn't that what we all want to do in the world? Some of those podcasts that you can get on the website or in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your shows. I uh, include the Superhero Hour Hour, where Cassie, Mike, and I discuss every single TV show based on a comic book, and the OCD, where Mike and I discuss every episode of the OCD. And then, of course, Movie of the Year, where Greg, Mike, and I try to figure out what is the single greatest movie of any given year. So make sure you're downloading all of those shows, leave a review, leave a star rating, leave a podcast. If you have an idea for an episode, just... Record it and email it to us, and we'll probably put it on the air. Thanks. Bye. All right, guys. Come and see. 1985's Russian war movie. Uh, what, is the me- what is the meaning of the ending? From And I, like online, it turns out that like in circles that watch Come and See, you know, like it's not a famous ending in real life, uh-huh. but... In circles where Come and See is a famous movie, the ending is. There's a lot of... People have a lot to say about it. Uh, In the ending, uh, Fly shoots a picture of Hitler five or six times. um, And then we go to the title card outlining what Germany did in Belarus to Fly then joining the March of the Partisans. Uh, What? Let's start with this. What do we think Klimov is doing with... We'll start with the montage. Let's talk about the shooting of the Hitler picture. It seems like... He is taking a fantastical journey in his imagination by shooting this this picture of Hitler and like sort of undoing everything that happens in World War Two and then getting all the way back to Hitler as a baby sitting on his mother's lap. So like that old like ethical dilemma, mm-hmm. do you kill baby Hitler? And then he opts not to. And that seems to be maybe a hopeful note that then goes right into a smash of a title card that says the thing that you just watched happened over 600 times. And then him marching off with the partisans, it feels like, like you guys said it earlier, right? It feels like the black Klansman ending. Like it's nice that he doesn't shoot baby Hitler. Like maybe that feels like he learned a lesson for a second there, but what, what do you do with that lesson when his next thing is to go marching off with them again? Yeah, I, I think it's showing like his impotent rage because they, all the Nazis that just got captured got doused in gasoline and then people either thought that was too gross or just couldn't wait to light them on fire. They had to shoot them and Floria wasn't done with his violence. So he goes and shoots this picture and he's crying. Like, I, I think the he's trying to shoot all of Hitler's history away, but it's it's either he's good and he didn't kill baby Hitler or he still is weak and couldn't just end it 
like it, it, it is a, not a, it's a complicated right. place we leave and then he goes to join them because like what else do you do and even though they're not glorious heroes aren't the belarusians still better than the nazis i mean there's a couple of nazis in here who straight up say no we got to kill the babies though that's the most important part yeah like th- then they can't grow up and fight us yeah. um and like the reason that the nazis were so successful but the reason that hope like you said greg or humanity will win is because we'll beat the nazis but we can't ever be as bad a- as them like nazis definitely would have killed baby non-hitler so we we can't do it because then we're nazis yeah which is what is how i read the gasoline because the guy poured gasoline on the nazis under gunpoint and it did feel like people somebody started shooting them because like we can't do what they did to us that is we can kill them but burning them alive is a line too far yeah i mean because you really do like you sacrifice your humanity when you start doing that. It is one thing to to shoot them because they're basically monstrous, but to fall to their level when you've just seen a, something like similar to that happen, and it's done with like an air of like this should be like something that we just do, not something that we like. There's the Nazis in this are so theatrical. Mm-hmm. I mean, that old man with his like, with his weird little sugar baby monkey Loris animal. Um, they're like so decadent and disgusting while they do it, and so it's there's like, the yeah, Nazi lady eating lobster while driving around on the yes, thing. Yes, yeah, like and, and so it, it, they are turning their back on on that, but the, just to witness everything that happened, and then to come away with like, well, he wouldn't kill baby Hitler. It felt a little, I don't know, like so empty because it was very hypothetical i guess well, i i right before he sees the hitler painting he does come across a kid who looks exactly like he did at the beginning of the movie he has the uh-huh. weird wooden backpack he looks very happy and... i thought it was little satan again oh really a little growly but, no we well, would know because he would say something horrific in that voice i'm uh, your best friend <laughs> let's keep playing together forever uh so it's like he sees the innocent him, and it does seem like all of the like he sees that, and then the shooting with Hitler, him realizing this is never going to stop because I've been through all of this and I'm changed, but there's still a young me who's about to go through this. Uh, it's fucked up. I understand why that, the ending is big. Is that the only time he actually uses that gun? Because that gun looms so large mm-hmm. in the movie. I mean, the the gun in some ways almost comes across as like a character in the movie, if you guys can even believe I would say that. But like it it. it you know what i deserve that um but it it, the way it is like shot and the way that the movie starts with it's being unearthed and then Mm. he keeps going back to it and then he like seems to have like a little breakdown when the gun itself is like broken yeah Uh, the centrality of of the gun makes me wonder what it means that the only time he shoots it is into that picture and yeah like the other thing too is on one hand I'm just I'm so over the moon with this movie that I'll just accept whatever it does and then argue that it's good, even if I'm not sure that it is. Uh-huh. And then on the other hand, I started thinking that like, is this a condemnation on pacifists? You know, like it's an anti war movie, but you know, Greg, like you said in the beginning of the show, like it is nece- it's necessary sometimes that we have to go through all yeah. these trials. And these motherfucking pacifists, what they'll do is they'll shoot a picture, which actually does not get a ton done, unless uh-huh. it's some sort of like you know, magical Dorian Gray situation. Um, and then even shooting the picture, 
we won't go as far as we right. need to, and that's bad. That's not good. That's bad. It's just Kill fucking baby Hitler. Yeah. Like, did yeah, you guys that, read what the original title of the movie was? Kill Hitler. Kill Hitler. That that is when Tarantino inevitably remakes this movie. It's definitely called Kill Hitler. Hitler must die. Um, I feel like yeah, that's why I question the anti-war nature of the movie, and because I, I also feel like there's the other message potentially is, and this one is not as comfortable. Is like um you should fight to the last man yeah. all the time. Like you should yeah. not, you shouldn't lose your humanity, but when it comes time to either go hide or fight into the last man, choose to fight into the last man, because potentially if you go hide, you're, you're sacrificing something. Yeah. Hiding didn't help anybody. Like, I mean, it helped, it helped the partisans because it helped them to be able to strike out at, at the, right. at the Germans. But yeah. this, when you study the, like, when you look at the history of this conflict, what what was going on really was these two sides were just like taking every opportunity to find like an exposed flank of the other, mm-hmm. and then just myrtleizing everybody in that exposed flank. Yeah, I guess I was thinking of the the Bog Islanders, uh-huh. like where him and Glasha run to. That at this point they're starving and they're just losing people two and three at a time as they go out to hunt food instead of like just get your shit together and join the resistance. Yeah. And that message is uncomfortable, you know, oh, yeah. because it, it, it feels maybe it, like it's bordering on victim blamey. Um, I know. I, d- I don't want to blame victims here. Like, uh, I want to attach this to today, and I don't want it to sound like I'm blaming victims that this movie depicts. But, like, I see a lot today of we've got one side who is just, you know, doing wh- as much as they possibly can at all times. And the other side saying, it'll probably turn out okay. Yeah. I'm going to cross my fingers and not do anything about it. Yeah, like, you know, I'm sure this kids in cages on the border thing is going to work out fine. It'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 so then, like, this isn't an anti war movie because it feels like it, it, then it ultimately it's saying, like, you have to act. And it doesn't provide any other avenue of action other than violence. Mm-hmm. The, we talked about how the ending, while he's shooting, we see. History in reverse, right? Which all of the things, all the damage that Germany did to humans and architecture and everything, we watch the film go backwards and everything is okay. Um, that that came out of left field as far as the rest of the movie went. Like now, the line of like realism or you know ultra realism or whatever. Now we're just in this fantasy world. Um, was that as striking as like maybe characters looking into the camera or having the camera be a POV? It was for me because I don't think of any of the things that you're seeing then as being part of the experience that the character would like have access to. He's not watching these news reels of everything right. that's going on. So he doesn't even like know. It seems like if he is trying to roll back the clock, it should the things he's thinking about rolling back are like, man, I wish these guys didn't roll into the village. I wish I didn't run away. I wish there weren't two different times where I chose to like be where the action was not. So I couldn't do anything like Instead, it's this historical conduct. He's winding back the clock that we know, mm-hmm. that we're aware of. Is that okay? Or is that like, it's is that unusual. a betrayal of the first two hours and 15 minutes of the movie? I, I don't think it's a betrayal. I think it does seem like an extension of that title card. This happened to 628 villages. Like it's And it's, it also happened to all of Europe. Yeah, it's the guy saying, hey, this is real. Like, it just, if you didn't. Remember it this whole movie. I'm shoving it in your face one last time. And if you okay. expand it to all of World War II, it's then very easy to be like, yeah, and it's all of 
armed conflict mm-hmm. as well. Like if this if this is we see one village of six hundred and twenty nine of one continent wide conflict of one sea of conflict from the beginning of humankind, it like makes it all one piece. <laughs> all right guys let's go to the speed round let's wrap this shit up uh is this our first experience with 80s movie quicksand uh i thought it would be in every 80s movie we watched but this is the first time where uh fly and glasha are it looks like 80s movie quicksand yeah the apparently bogs are very painful to walk through that's what it looked like that it was also like slightly acidic and this burning was, them this was so disturbing it reminded me of a never-ending story when never-ending story yeah. a tray oh you God, and his like, horse I I'm very uncomfortable right. with this. Artax. Isn't it cool that we we defeated Quicksand in the 80s and it's just not around anymore? Yeah. Now it's sinkholes. Uh what's up with that heron watching fly and glasha sleep? I think the big ass bird, right? The yeah. I, I I'm not sure cuz I don't know. I'm not a birdiologist. Yeah, I I But I, I think have... he stepped on that nest. And yes. it's just coming and watching him and just saying, like, all your actions will I'm come sorry. back and freak it's you out and haunt you. Coming and seeing him. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, one of – I think one of the times that this movie does sort of have a heavy hand is stepping on the nest, crushing, you know, crushing children's yeah. ability to live. And then you have to live with that. You know, now now you see this bird here and you have to deal with the fact that you did that to a generation of cranes. Frazier, his brother, <laughs> Miles. The dad, the dog, Eddie. It was the best crane shot in the movie. Uh, There's a guy uh, halfway through the movie where they put Fly on this like truck and take him back, and they say like, "All right, so you're gonna say that you're this son, right? You're this this is your this is your sister." Uh, When the guy runs up, he's carrying a bell of hay, and he's just screaming hay uh, (laughs) as if all the characters just scream out what they do. Is that the funniest part of the movie? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's some good gut busters throughout. But I would say the guy yelling hay while carrying hay. Incorrect, Mike. Greg gets the point. The funniest part of the movie is uh, in the beginning where everything's happy, the mom's freaking out and saying, uh, if if you leave, you're just basically going to kill us. Uh, why don't you just kill your two twin sisters right now and puts an axe in his hand. Uh-huh. And he does this fake like, oh, I'm going to kill you. Uh, I'm just kidding. Mom's <laughs> weird. And I actually laughed out loud at Dude, that part. Well, so did the girls. <laughs> like, yeah, they liked it too. Him with his sisters is so beautiful. It's the only joy... In the, in the entire movie is that he obviously is a great big brother. I mean, it just makes everything else that happens so much sadder. But he's and and he's very like subtly funny. That is such a, like a powerful part of the movie. And it, yeah, if you have siblings, then you definitely know how uh, much of your childhood was spent like, oh, mom's an yeah. idiot, you know, and like <laughs> making faces at each other. Uh, is Glasha just this movie's manic pixie dream girl, <laughs> or is there more to her? I think there's more to her, but I think that she... I don't think there's a ton more. I think that she is the same kind of abstraction. I think she's almost like a a ghostly figure. She's like the innocence that's actively being lost. And I think that she sort of is a double for the poor woman later in the movie who gets Mm -hmm. raped. For sure that. Yeah. Oh, Uh, that wasn't her? No, no, that was was like a... But it was... I think you're supposed to like because it's dreamlike. You're just supposed to not quite know if it is her or not. You know, it is in so many ways that are important. I suppose that girl who walked up after being thrown in that truck and and horrifically raped and then just like spits all her teeth, yeah, at him. That was. Uh, but yeah, Glasha, I think is she's a little wacky, 
in the beginning. Like she says her name's Rosa. She's laughing. She's talking well, about how she's, she's going like, to kill him. Like it, it feels like she is showing him like, you're not going to get out of this. Okay, she's been man. A nurse. Like, she's been yeah. a nurse with like the, the partisan. So like she is actively breaking under the, the, the psychological pressure right. of trying to nurse people who are involved in armed conflict, which is like its own horrific experience. And so she's like just very broken herself. She's PTSD. Yeah, they- the other thing she does too, and like I can definitely see the complaint that a lot of movies, particularly war movies, get is that women aren't characters; they're there so men can go do something. Um, but once we, once he gets away from the mom, he meets Glasha, and a lot of this movie is about like what what does it mean to be a man in all of the awful ways, and you know, like all of the uh, horrible things you do, you have to do in order to be like respected by these other horrible male creatures. And them running into each other was a like a quick, quick puberty of, you know, like, I, I need you to think that I'm brave and I need you to not make fun of me. And when you don't do those two things, it freaks me out. You know, like, I'm I'm just here open for you. Right. Are You're here for me. And then when it's not like you, you do bad things, you know, like because you don't feel like a man. It's sort of she's just sort of serves as like I'm going to help your puberty along through the movie. Yeah. And she gives one of the best moments, like, and it's hard to find, like, the, as Greg said, the joyful moments, but, like, a very, it's still horrific, but uh, when they meet, uh, and she starts crying, and then he's crying, and then they start laughing, and then he takes off his boot and cries into the boot, and then they laugh the hardest anybody has ever laughed. Yeah. I could watch that scene again, and literally no other. Yeah, if you stopped it right there, you would not really understand the how the movie works, yeah. <laughs> These Sometimes kids are fun. When, when things get really, really bad you start freaking out so much that it makes you kind of laugh and you can't mm. figure out if you're laughing or crying or screaming or what, but it like at the, at the, their most extreme, the emotions all kind of converge into a weird, <laughs> a weird mania. All right, guys, we're going to take one last break and uh, we're going to get to the awards. May I have the envelope, please? And the Oscar for Best Picture is presented to... And the Oscar goes 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 to... And the Oscar goes... And the Oscar goes... And the Oscar goes to... The Oscar goes to... Your first award tonight is the WTF Award. At what point does somebody act the most like Mark Marin? Mike, you are up first. What is the most WTF second of this movie? Well, if it's the Mark Marin, it's definitely when the Nazi runs up and yells, lock the gates. You know what? I was just fucking kidding around. It's not about Mark Marin at all. Oh, okay. Then that's not yeah. my answer. Uh, I was being a scamp. The, when, when Glasha and Fly show up on Bog Island, the part they did make, because it reminded me a lot of uh, Midsummer. WTF, when the old man says, didn't I tell you not to dig? And then everybody on the island starts crying and screaming in unison at yeah. fly i was like why is this a theme of movies we're watching lately <laughs> i'm not a fan only the scariest one for me right. it is uh going when they go back to his empty village and it's like somebody was obviously just there a moment ago things are like still warm food is still like cooked um and then like there's like that emily dickinson fly buzzes and you just know like something is is horribly wrong um, that moment where you don't know exactly what's wrong or what how you're going to find out what happened happened, that is just like you want to know so bad and you're so afraid to find out, and that's the entire movie. 
that was that w- that was awful and that is the whole movie but yeah mike that's you got the most what the, what the fuck moment and here comes the parade most upsetting death greg we're gonna start with you can we can we lock this down please just say the thing that i will give you points for most upsetting death when he run you know the everybody in his town being dead um i didn't like the movie hadn't done anything like that yet and worse things were going to happen but just seeing like everybody in the in the town all shot up as they run away to the island was for me that, that was the most upsetting moment and he doesn't see it right no Lasha and, yeah. Yeah. Lasha and the camera like that that's also when i knew that like okay camera you came to play yeah like, <laughs> you're yeah. not messing around that was a blair witch style run run yeah. look keep running yeah Mike, most upsetting death. Uh, I mine is the cow. Uh, he's on the like one of the episodes is he leaves the Bog Island and they're they're trying to get this cow. Two of the guys die from standing in mines. Another guy gets shot and then he they finally have this cow and he's like, all right, it's just you and me, cow. And then the cow gets shot too, and it's just like, what was any of this for? There's so much fucked up about it. One. I don't think Peta was on this set. Yeah, that cow uh, really got shot. Today. Yeah, that's what I was wondering the whole time. Yeah. Two, he wakes up uh, being, and the cow is dead when he wakes up, but he wakes up like being nuzzled by it. Like finally he is being comforted. Mm -hmm. It just happens to be by a dead cow. And then three, when the cow's dead, like he just manhandles the corpse and that's just not something, like he like tries to get it up. And we're clearly looking at a fucking 12-year-old kid handling a dead cow. But that's Greg. It's the barn. It's the fucking barn. Of course it is. With all the dead bodies piled cringiest moment mike what was the cringiest moment this is i just have to what made me cringe in the beginning when there's like nerd nerd militiamen and big beefy militiamen and he drinks uh the buttermilk and it's the fattest loudest slurp uh i did not like that did not care for it also i think that milk was for for everyone at the table (laughs) you're just supposed to take a portion there big guy uh, Greg, what cringed you out the most? There is something about this movie that makes me feel very uncomfortable, and it's that it. Um, yeah, I don't think it was made in like a very safe or conscientious or humane way, and I know that that's like to get like the best performance out of the actors and everything. But you know, that's that excuse is used a lot in entertainment, and it's like these these really fucked up studies that they did like back in like the thirties or forties or whatever, that every time they teach you about, they're like, you can't do this kind of stuff anymore because it's wrong, obviously, but Um, it works. Like they fired real bullets at this kid, like, and they missed him by very little. And like, he was like, they really fucked this kid up. So like, that's unethical. And like, they were running around the place in actual Belarus where this actually happened with the actual descendants of the people this actually happened to. And that just all seems so fucking traumatic and crazy to think about. And so that I like, there's something kind of upsetting about the reality of how this movie was actually made. It just doesn't seem right in a a way. Okay, so Mike's nominee was drinking milk, which I hate. (laughs) It's it's the thing I hate the most. So uh, I am leaning towards that. Um, Greg's is obviously worse, but it's like metatextual. Like we didn't know that while watching the movie. Does that disqualify it? You... Honestly, I thought about it the entire movie. I, I like you knew it. Well, the, when that cow died, I was like, "Oh, they fucking killed that cow!" Just really, <laughs> you know, they killed that and cow. And you can tell that the kid is legitimately super upset at a lot of moments. You can just tell that he is. That it's like in Alien when they like the guy, the actors didn't know that they were going to actually pop a thing out of out mm-hmm. of that dummy's chest. Like, it's that you get a good performance if it's if you can call it a performance. But it just it seems wrong to terrorize a kid to show you that at some point back in the past something really bad terrorized a kid. And I just want to be clear. I'll speak for Greg here. Uh, 
You're talking about the mannequin they used in place of John Hurt. Not that you think John Hurt is a dummy. <laughs> no, Greg's going down. He definitely hates John Hurt. That's Fuck stupid. John Hurt. I am not going down. <laughs> no, I would never say anything bad about John Hurt, and I won't let the online community take me to task for it. Real bullets. Yeah, I'm going to give that the win. Um, I'm sure this kid is a talented actor. I'm sure there are many kids that are talented actors. But the face that he makes throughout this movie, we're seeing legitimate yeah. torture happen. Yeah. Uh, director's signature, Greg. This is our first and last. It was his last movie uh, from Emil Klimov. What do you think is his signature move? Okay, man, this might not be a great answer, but uh, I think his signature move is having his projects delayed for X amount of years <laughs> before they're allowed to actually go forward. They wouldn't even let this guy start shooting this movie for like eight years. He had another project where it was like a very thinly veiled satire where there, there was a character that was supposed to be Khrushchev. Uh, and they like put that on the back burner until Khrushchev saw it. And he was like, this is hilarious. I love the character. That's me. And they're like, okay, yeah, you can do your, pro-. like each of his projects were like banned or stopped for a little bit. They, they like sat on this for eight years. It's like one of the achievements of Russian cinema, and they almost like just like put it away into the vault for for it never to be made. That's crazy. Do you know what we didn't talk about is that if this movie came out in 2015 instead of 1985, we could have that conversation of Marvel's going to swoop in and give him a character. If he did not change his style at all, what do you think is the perfect Marvel character for him? Dazzler? Night Thrasher. Night Thrasher, yes, dude. Ride that skateboard. Mike, what is the director's <laughs> signature? I, I think it's the center framing of face. Look at throughout it, like that's what broke so many so much of the movie and, and I can't be like, Oh, another director did that right there. That that felt like very much his Not even that one French guy from the French movie? Nah, fuck the that French, French connection. <laughs> Didn't you isn't there some Joan of Arc movie that kind oh, of Oh yes. Like Yeah. That... But I read this award before Ryan texted us though. So. <laughs> Uh, Dreyer's uh, Passion of Joan of Arc is just her face in the, filling up the screen horrified the entire movie. And I will say that uh, he, Klimov, definitely watched Passion of Joan of Arc in the same way that the guy who made 1917 watched Come and See. <laughs> All right. The other thing, too, about the camera work we didn't really talk about is that not only are people looking into the camera, but the your screen on your TV is not filled out. Like this guy yeah. kept it in a dimension where it, I think it's just supposed to be like newsreel, right? Like this is back when like we, we, we could do it widescreen, but instead the news that you saw in this shape was fucking bullshit, you know? So here we're going to copy it and make it look like that. And the human head like fills that frame. So yeah. perfectly. Yeah. There's yeah. There's just too much. There'd be too much on the sides. If you know, we could see other people running around making jokes, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, like pound for pound performance. I wanted Where to, be do we go to here? argue other people for a while. I was like, I'm, here's why I'm going to ar- argue Glasha, but then she disappears half the movie. It, it's this kid who can't act, who's not an actor, and then would go on to star in the beloved Bro series. <laughs> uh, Wait, all four of them. All four of them. I I, th- I think Fly is is a phenomenal young actor. Alexei Kravachenko. Yes. Good on you. Is. Uh, and I, I'm also going to pick him. Um, even if it wasn't just that he got like legitimately traumatized for this movie, the scene we talked about earlier with him with his sisters, there he has a deft touch as a performer mm-hmm. in that scene. This is uh, a kid who was up to the task performance wise, and I think that probably he aided in his own being completely disturbed by what was happening as a way to fuel his own performance. I think he probably had some agency in that, even though he's this is just such a, a young kid, but. 
um, it's arresting, and the movie would not work because it, it just wouldn't work if he didn't work in it, and he totally does. I can't imagine another child actor I've ever seen. Yeah, you know, like you need the you know you you need the the person who is not professionally trained who doesn't have a career like you just come in and fuck him up on your own because otherwise this would have been acted like he would have been acting and it would not have worked uh so i would give that to both of you and then i would give mike the uh the center framing i forgot to award that one so your awards are for what the fuck it's uh everybody crying in unison uh worst death was the barn cringiest moment was using real bullets on set director signature it wasn't milk believe it uh, director, director signature was the center framing of faces and the performance, which I think it's going to take down a couple of Moody's, if I can predict in the future. It was Alexei, I'm sorry, what was it, Greg? Uh, Kravichenko. Kravichenko as the main character. Those are your rewards for Come and See. Come pick them up and see them shine. When we come back, we're going to get to where we think this movie is going to land in the bracket. Thank you for listening and for your support. If you want to support us more directly, go over to patreon.com slash yourpopfilter. Pick a tier, shed a tier, get some extra stuff. There's extra shows, extra long shows. Uh, You can make Ryan draw you pictures, make me write you a poem. There's all kinds of stuff over there. You can even get a shirt off our very own backs. That's patreon.com slash yourpopfilter. We also want to say thank you to Shady Monk providing all the tunes you hear on this show check them out on spotify bandcamp soundcloud wherever the kids get their music that i'm too old to know check out shady monk back to you greg a couple weeks ago we declared brazil to be the single greatest movie that we had ever seen (laughs) in the history of movie of the year 1985 and before that we watched Back to the Future. After that, we watched The Breakfast Club. You guys, 1985 is uh, shaping up to be a fucking crazy time. The, dude, this is it. This is, the, this is the best year ever. Like, 88, we thought, was. But then the movies were, like, blockbustery and fun, but didn't quite, like, hit us in the feels as a, as a, as a field, as a unit. Mm-hmm. Holy moly, the movies of 85. Like, spraying to all fields, giving you every type of emotion that you want to feel. I do have an argument against that, though. Uh, for 88, we were like... Uh, man, this whatever that year's Russian war movie sounds great, but we got to let in Beetlejuice. And now at this point in our movie of the year lives, we're like, no, fucking bring in all the weird <laughs> shit, the baby. Russia. Yeah, I, I, man, I want to see good movies like this movie has changed my life. I will never be the same after having seen this this movie. And like you finally hate Nazis. Finally, dude. Now I'm like, you know what? These were bad guys. Indiana Jones was right. Uh, but like. I want more of these experiences, you know? I mean, Come and See is a movie that at this point is still hard to find, and I can't believe that because, like, most movies want to be art. Like, art wants to be as good as Come and See is. Like, this elevates art. Like Art it wishes. Is, I mean, it really, like, it, it is... Uh, it, when I would compare it to something, I would compare it to, like, The David, or I would compare it to, like, War and Peace. Like, this goes down with the classics of other art. It, like it, it, it's it's more mm-hmm. than just cinema. It's like this is one of the most important productions of like the history. <laughs> Maybe we get too fired up about the things that we've just seen, but like Brazil <laughs> was very good. But I like this was a this is a singular experience. It's like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. Now before. I think Brazil's a piece of shit. Now honestly, dude, I I'm wondering what, in the next couple weeks if like this movie is going to start hovering. It's going to like fall on my estimation a little bit. But if not, then, like, we asked ourselves when we saw Brazil, 
could one of these other movies shock us? And to me, this movie has. Like, Brazil had a very short, <laughs> short run at the top, but I think it's this. I think this is a better movie. But is it 85, Mike? Like, what do we do about that? Yeah, I mean, it very much is not 85 because it's 1943. So <laughs> that nobody that. saw it. I mean, I saw like right. I, I saw how much it made online. It made like $160,000 in, in 85. Like in ruples? In <laughs> I mean, nobody saw this movie in 85. And yeah, so then we, when we do the bracket, we'll have to have the lifelong battle of is it best movie or is it movie that really owns and defines the year? Or you know what I'm thinking is that we just shut the fuck up and we don't we stop having the same conversation and we just have we just vote you know <laughs> like uh, like I don't know what I'm gonna do there's there's an argument to be made that Breakfast Club should win over this if you think movie of the year means something probably different than I do you know um so I don't know what's gonna happen I do know that this has been the most impactful movie I've watched for this podcast um and. You guys have been the most impactful friendships I've ever had with anybody on a podcast. I have lots of other friends that I don't do podcasts with that you guys are way lower <laughs> Liar. than. Liar. You only have friends with Ev- podcasters. Everyone knows that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, well, let's get to the Come and See Awards for you two. Um, I had three points. Um, that's my lowest showing of I the year so far. <laughs> yeah, you're slipping up. Um, Greg, I think that you tied in awards. Did or I? The, okay. Did well, no, because there's five you? awards. It went 3-2, Mike. Okay. So, yeah, awards. that left you with 34. And Mike with 29. Greg, oh. an impassioned – I think a couple of impassioned speeches throughout this podcast really <laughs> locked it in for you. Whereas Mike is incapable of having passion. I don't feel passion. Plus, I was shooting live rounds right above Greg's head to help get those speeches out of him. And you know what? It, it worked for me. But, yeah, this uh, – I, I it's – it's easier to win the ones where you get absolutely carried away by a movie because like Mike did with that's breakfast why club. I want breakfast. Club. <laughs> yeah. that's why. Honestly, I was in such a lull for, for breakfast club, to be honest. Like it was, sometimes we watch movies for this podcast and rarely do we get one where we hate it so much that it's like fun to, to beat it up. But we do that sometimes. A lot of times we either get movies that we love or movies that we just like, it's hard to feel anything for. And breakfast club, especially now that it's going to be sandwiched in between this and Brazil. It's just like, there's no other form of art that has as varied a type of subject matter and tone as fucking movies. <laughs> like, I can't believe this is the same thing as Breakfast Club. <laughs> like, you could go to a video store, I assume, and you could take either rent VHS them at the same out. time. Like, how could they? They're movie they're, night, <laughs> and they're oh, both man. about what how do you t- do first? They're both <laughs> about how tough it is to be a teen, right? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Florian is the is he the brain? Is he the jock? He's the no. Kid that, no, he's the one that has a gun. He's the dork. He's the no. He's the jock because both Emilio Estevez and him get so impassioned that they uh, shoot or scream through glass. I think those are the two most important parts of both movies. And the end of the come see. I think he might be Bender because he does. It ends with his fist in the air, and you know he's triumphant. Well, a perfect human is equal parts of all five, right? That's so true. That's fly. Um, next week we're going to do state of the franchise. We're going to take a little break from all of these very serious movies and go over what it was like to have a franchise in 1985, your Arby's, your Wiener schnitzels and so on. Uh, and then after that, 
uh, we're gonna do the Goonies. <laughs> and so I, I, based on I, everything said, I'm gonna win the Goonies. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> Mike, you win the dumb movies, but I'm I think I'm gonna start lobbying against it. Like, why would we do this to the Goonies? Why would we do this to poor Richard Donner? Like, yeah. this seems unfair. I mean, I think he would be like, I didn't make the movie so that three adult men could sit around <laughs> and like argue whether or not it's as good as the most important movie ever made. Like what <laughs> you guys are doing your life. Yeah, wrong. I don't think that this is fair to me. Someone who like had a job and did it. But if he had thought of that though, then he would have made Goonies different. And what I want to see that Goonies. Common Goonies. They give him the script for Goonies and he turns it into <laughs> come and see. I'm sorry. This is reality. I mean, you can't escape this. Uh, all right, so that's what we're, that's how we're going to treat Goonies next time. We're going to talk about which come and see character would Sloth have been if that <laughs> actually took place. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. Congratulations to come and see. I think there's a bright future ahead of you. Uh, for Mike, I'm Ryan. For Greg, I'm Ryan. And I will always be Ryan. And of course, keep watching them movies.